Pastor Javen reminds us today how Jesus defeated our greatest curse. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. But we know that warm weather is right around the corner, and that means pools are going to be opening, right? Anybody excited about pools being opening? And, and, and when it comes to pools, especially the first time of the year, there's, all, there's two different two kinds of people that kind of get into the water with, with pools, uh, and, or maybe yours is the lake or the ocean. And um, it's those that walk slowly in. Maybe you're that person. You kind of gradually go in. You got to get used to the way it feels, right? You got to wade in the water. You know, you kind of, you got to do that. Then there's others of us like myself. It's just, you know, we're running off the side or off the diving board is there. It's cannonball, right? It's just jumping right in. I want to do away with the shock of of it all. I want to jump right in. Well, this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to jump right in to, to, to something this morning. Uh, but we're not throwing you in. We're jumping in together, right? We're jumping in with floaties on. But I want you, I want to, I want to share a, a statement with you as we get started today from C.S. Lewis. You, you may have heard of C.S. Lewis. Uh, he is known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he has written mere, uh, Christianity. He's written a lot of different books. Phenomenal author. If you didn't know, which you probably do uh, if you know him, uh, he was an atheist. Uh, and uh, some relationships, some friendships of his led him to pursue Christ. And he did. And he started a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's when he began to, to change his life and change the way he was doing things. But... Later in his life, as a follower of Christ, his wife had a painful bout with cancer, and she lost her life. <clears throat> and as a follower of Christ, he wrote these words that I'm about to share with you, and I want you to hear uh, what he said. He said, I cannot understand why God is always there when things are going well. He said, telling you what he expects of you, but you go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. He says, you may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever even inhabited? It seems so once. And he asked this question. Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? A follower of Christ, he wrote these words. C.S. Lewis, one of the most quoted followers of Christ, even today, he's dead, but he's got a Twitter account. I mean, it's crazy. But this is not... One of his most quoted statements. It's not something that you hear being said about him often. But you know this statement is honest, right? And probably for many of you in here, many of us in here, it's relatable. It sounds a lot like the Psalms. When you read the Psalms and you look at what the psalmists were saying. Why, God? Where are you, God? Why am I facing this? Why am I going through this, God? Diving in and pursuing and trying to understand God in the middle of the circumstances and the situations that we're facing. And C.S. Lewis, his faith got stronger in this. But it just goes to show that when we're faced with situations like this, when we're looking at the circumstances in our life, there's different ways that we can choose 
to respond in these situations and in regards to our faith. When stuff like this comes, one of the choices we can make is if we have been following Christ, we can choose to just let go of our faith, lose our faith. If we've never been following Christ, we may make the choice, well, I'm just going to reject it altogether. And the reason is because if I feel like God's not there, then God doesn't care, right? Well, maybe we can say the another choice is that, well, I'm, I'm facing this difficult situation, but I'm just going to, I'm not going to pursue God much in this. I'm just, you know, I, I'm just going to kind of stay with my feet just kind of dangling in the water in this. I, I'm, I'm not going to try to discover what God's teaching me in this. I'm not going to try to discover what God's saying through any of this. I, I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm just going to be here and exist through this. But in that situation, I want to pose this question. Are you really loving God with everything if you're not exploring God in everything? Because I think a third way to respond to these situations and these things, the third choice that we have is that we can dig deeper and we can dive deeper into this and we can try to figure out where is God going in all of this? Where's God taking me in all of this? There's a lady by the name of Corey Ten Boone. You may have heard of her before. She is a survivor of the Holocaust. And surely you know what the Holocaust is. You've been to history class if you weren't asleep. <laughs> and you learned about what was going on in that time. The Nazis was a horrible regime during that time and what they were doing to Jews. Corey Ten Boom was a part of that and she survived that. And she penned these words, words that you've probably heard before. She penned these words. She says, there's no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. How can you go through something like the Holocaust and still write about the love, the deep love of God. It's only because you make a choice to dive deeper in the middle of all the circumstances, in the middle of everything that you're facing. And here's the great thing about this weekend, this holiday, what we celebrate. Like I said, as a church, as followers of Christ, this is something we celebrate and should celebrate every day of our life. It is the foundation of our faith. But this holiday that's recognized and put on everybody's calendars, Easter will always remind us that God is a God that understands our suffering. Jesus Christ stepped into the middle of our world and he suffered for our sake and died for us so that we can have eternal life. There's no other deity, there's no other proclaimed deity and that, that makes the proclamation of taking the judgment of our wrongdoings on themselves. There's no other proclaimed deity that steps in and gives their life for humanity and for humanity's salvation. The truth of the matter is there's no other deity. And Easter... This time, this event that we celebrate every day of our life as followers of Christ reminds us of just that thought. And with the rest of our time today, I want to look at a very memorable account from the life of Jesus. It's an account that it really set into motion this holiday, this time, this event. It's, it's an account that where Jesus revealed who he was before he proved who he was through his death and his resurrection. It's an account of Jesus's interaction with Lazarus. You may know this story. It's, it's, uh, it's very popular. If you've, you know, I mean, it's likely you've heard this story, read this story. 
John, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, uh, he wrote about it in his book, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those were written by people who walked with Jesus. And then they tell the story of their journey with Jesus, their firsthand experience of being with him. And we have the privilege of having those words to be able to know what happened in the life of Jesus. And when you look in John's writing and you look at John chapter 11, you see this story about this guy, Lazarus. Now, Lazarus was from the town of Bethany. Um, And Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus had built a great relationship with these three. He, he had a friendship with them, had a great relationship uh, with them. But Jesus was not in town at this moment. And so uh, Mary and Martha sent word to where Jesus was that Lazarus was sick. He was not doing well at all. Um, and and um, the reason Jesus wasn't in Bethany because was because the, the few days ago, in the time of the story, when he was there, uh, some, some people had picked up some rocks to stone Jesus because they said he was blaspheming God. So that's a pretty good reason to leave town when people are throwing rocks at you. I mean, that's, that's a good, good idea. But so Jesus had left. So he gets word that Lazarus is sick. And, and as we move into John chapter 11, we see Jesus make this very interesting statement when he's told about Lazarus being sick, sick. And then John follow it up with an interesting statement. Let's look at him. John chapter 11, verse four. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. That's Jesus' interesting statement. Then let's see what John writes. He says, so although Jesus loved Martha, loved Mary and Lazarus, and in some translations say because he loved them, since he loved them, it says he stayed where he was for the next two days. Now, think about those statements. If you know the story of Lazarus and you know what happens, Lazarus does die in this moment. If you didn't know that, if you didn't know the story, spoiler alert, Lazarus is going to die, all right, in this moment. So, but Jesus says this story is not going to end in Lazarus' death. So Jesus isn't lying though, because the situation does not end at this moment with Lazarus being dead. More on that in a moment. But then John makes this statement and he says that although Jesus loved them, since Jesus loved them, because Jesus loved them, he waited to go back to see Lazarus. Now, think about that for a second. If you find out someone you love is in a desperate situation, they want you to know they're asking for you. Typically, our response is to drop everything we're doing and go right to them, right? To be with them, to be beside them. John tells us that even though he loved them, because he loved them, since he loved them, he waited. That's interesting. But here's what we know. Sometimes a greater act of love is not necessarily a removal of the pain. A greater act of love is getting into the middle of the pain with someone, knowing that that pain may lead to a greater revelation. Now, when my kids were little, one of my kids uh, was afraid of the bathwater. Now, this was, uh, this was after they were too big for the little bath boat or whatever they laid in, you know, when they were little infants. They're too big for that, but they're not big enough to be in there by themselves, right? And let's leave them because uh, you don't know what could happen. But one of my kids was terrified of us putting them in the water. You know, you go to put them in and they're doing that thing where their legs are going up really high and they're flexible in ways you had no idea a child could be flexible. Like, why can you not go in the water? 
so I go and I say, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this. So I go and I get my bathing suit and I put my bathing suit on. I come back to the bathroom. Some of you parents, you might have done this yourself. I come back to the bathroom. I grab my child and I hold them and I get in the water with them. And I sit down in the water with them, holding them in the water. They're a lot calmer at this moment. And as we play in the water together, eventually they let go of me and they begin to play in the water. And they realize that what was such a painful experience for them is actually a good thing for them. But it took me getting in the middle of it with them and walking with them through this for them to see a bigger revelation. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He came down to the middle of our pain. And this is exactly what he does with Martha, with Mary, with Lazarus. He gets into the middle of their pain and he brings an incredibly great revelation. But it wasn't just a revelation for Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It was a revelation for all of mankind. For them and for everyone coming forward. So Jesus waits. But eventually he decides now's the time to go back. So he tells his disciples, you keep reading in John 11. He tells his disciples, okay, guys, it's time for us to go back to Bethany. Uh, Lazarus is, is, is asleep and I need to go wake him up. And so his disciples are like, well, Jesus, that's the best thing for a sick person, right? We got to sleep. You got to rest. We need our rest. And Jesus looks at him. He's like, goobers, he's dead. So I need to go wake him up, like literally raising from the dead. And it's a good thing I'm doing this so that you can see this is for you. And so the other guys are like, well, that's great. Yay. Let's go back to Bethany and let's die with him. Right. Because last time we were there, they were throwing rocks at him. It's in there. It's a very funny, humorous conversation. You can read it, John chapter 11, but, but they go and they get back and we see that Martha and Mary both come out to talk to Jesus. They both have the same statement. Jesus has different responses to them in those statements. And I want us to look at it. John chapter 11, we're going to start at verse 21. And this is what happens. Martha said to Jesus when she comes out to see Jesus, she says, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Great statement of faith, right? Remember her statement of faith. Remember that. And Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. And Jesus looked at her and he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live. Even after dying. What he's saying is even after death on this side, they will live. He says, everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary and she called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here. He wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. And when the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there, just like good friends would do. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, here's that statement. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But watch Jesus' response to Mary. When Jesus saw her weeping and saw that the other people were wailing with her, a deep anger 
welled up in him. And he was deeply troubled. And he says, where, where have you put him? Where, where's his body? And they told him, Lord, come and see. And then look at Jesus. Then Jesus wept. And the people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. Two exactly the same statements. Two completely different responses. Martha comes to Jesus and says, if only you'd been here, I knew, I know he would have, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus's response to Martha was give her, to give her that textbook theological response about who he was. And here's the thing, the way that Jesus answers her is as if he knows that she probably remembers the story of Moses and what they had learned through the history of their ancestors, that Moses had been out walking in sheep and came across a burning bush and God began to speak through that bush to him and to lead him to go rescue the people out of Egypt. And, and Moses responds to the bush and says, well, who am I to tell them sent me? And God responds back and says, the I am. That's all I need to be known as, the I am. Why? Because anything that we need, he is. Any answer to our situation that we need in life, he is. And so Jesus looks at Martha and he says, Martha, right now, I know that what you need is a new life of Lazarus, a resurrected life. And he looks at her and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. What you need in your moment right now, I am he. That's who I am. And she says, God, I, I believe, I believe, I believe in who you are. And see, what Jesus was doing was he was pushing Martha to take her faith from something that was in, that was a theology grounded in an idea that she had learned. Well, I know that they're going to see the resurrection at the end of days. Jesus is moving her beyond an idea she learned to making her faith personal in him. He's saying, Martha, I don't want your faith to be just in, in an idea. I want it to be in me, Jesus is saying. He said, Martha, your faith doesn't need to be based on a principle. It needs to be based and grounded and founded on a person. Him. Because he is the resurrection of life. And what Jesus is saying is he is saying the glory of God, everything you're longing for in eternity on the other side of this life in heaven, the glory of God, it isn't just reserved for heaven. The glory and the experience of God, the joy, the comfort, the peace, the rest, the transcendence, life, it can be experienced through Jesus Christ right now, he's saying. It's not something you have to wait for. It's now. And Martha didn't get that revelation from Jesus coming in and just immediately fixing her circumstance. She got that revelation from experiencing personally who Jesus is. Jesus wants us to experience him personally in our life, to pursue him personally and to realize who he truly is, our resurrection, our life. So that was his response to Martha. His response to Mary is a lot different because he, 
Sometimes you don't need a theological answer to your circumstance and to your situation. Sometimes you just need a friend. And God knew, Jesus knew that Mary needed more than just a God with answers, even though he was a God with answers. He knew that she needed more than just a God with answers. She needed a God with empathy. And this is the great thing about Jesus is that he is a God. He is a king. He is a priest. He is a Lord who sympathizes with us. He doesn't just know about your pain and your discomfort and your circumstances. He understands it. He sees it and he weeps with you in it. But even greater than all that, he is your answer to it, to the pain. Now, there's no denying that there, it's difficult to understand why Jesus you know, would do this other than what he said. It's all to spark and to begin the very reason that he came. To have a revelation of who he was as the son of God. But even the, even the people around expressed their, it's hard, how hard it was for them to understand that Jesus did it this way. John had just told us in verse 36 that people were looking and watching him weep over the situation. And they were saying, look how much he loved Lazarus. But then in the very next verse, the very next sentence that John writes, he says, there's still some people looking around and saying, Jesus healed a blind man. Could he have not come sooner and healed Lazarus and kept him from dying? So they're struggling as well. They're struggling with trying to figure out why Jesus did this way. They're struggling with doubt. They're struggling with trying to figure out why the suffering, why the evil. Why does he have to go through this? If you loved him, Jesus, and you can heal, why is he having to go through this? And suffering and evil is something that we wrestle with in life, is it not? You've probably asked the question. You've probably had conversations about it. And you know, if God is a good God, why is evil in the world? Why does struggling take place in the world? But most of the objections that are raised against God about suffering and about evil are based on the assumptions that we deserve good for our life. We deserve good. If we want to be honest, we're entitled. We all are. You know, for the longest time, the millennial generation was labeled as an entitled generation. But the truth is, we're all entitled. We all walk that way and act that way. We deserve good. That's why we question whether why evil exists in the world. Why do bad things happen in this world? But the thing is, when you look at how everything played out throughout from creation to now, if you look at the story of Adam and Eve, and they were placed in that garden and God looked at them and said, look, I'm giving you all of this. You can eat whatever you want, but listen, this, this is a tree of life. Don't eat from that tree because if you eat from it, you're going to die. But then they're tempted and they eat the fruit of that tree. And so they experience not immediate death, but eventual death. But ultimately it's the curse of death. A death that our enemy wants to be eternal. And so 
when you look at the fact that because of what Adam and Eve did, now there is a curse upon us. And now we are born into a nature that is sinful where we voluntarily come into this world participating in that nature. You don't have to teach us to be selfish. We're just naturally selfish. And we're naturally sinners. But thank God he knew that this was going to happen. And from the, before the foundations of the earth were ever laid, Jesus Christ was a part of the story to come and rescue us from the curse of death. And you say, well, Javen, well, Adam and Eve, that's a, that's, I don't know that that's a real story. I think that's a fairy tale. Here's where I believe it's true. Because again, John, who was one of the followers of Jesus Christ, wrote in his book... And the way he started his book, he said, in the very beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word was Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning. Later in John chapter 19, you find where Jesus actually references the creation story. And he says, have you not read the scriptures? Do you not know that God created man? And he references Adam and Eve in the story of Adam and Eve. So Jesus doesn't deny that creation. And he doesn't deny that existence. So I'm going to believe that this is real. This is what happened. This is the fall. This is the curse that we have. And so for the fact that there is anything good in this world, that we have sunshine, that we have today at least, we have sustenance to give us food every day of our life, hopefully, to be able to survive, or we at least have people who love us to provide food for us in some way, shape, or form so that we can can survive. The fact that we have these types of things, the fact that we have happiness in any kind of way, that's grace. The fact that God has given us space to repent through Jesus Christ and have reconciliation to the Father, that's amazing grace. And the thing about all through history and the word of God and what Jesus Christ did, it doesn't wrestle so much with the problem of evil. Jesus even admits you're going to have problems in this world because evil exists. It doesn't wrestle so much with evil as it does marvel at the amazing grace of God. And so what we have to do is change our perspective. And this is exactly what's happening with Mary and Martha and every person standing here in this story. They're realizing our greatest curse is death. And Jesus Christ came to defeat that curse. You say, Javen, death, I see death. I've I've lost people. I've lost loved ones. Death is real. Yes. On this side of eternity, it, it is real. We experience it. I have lost my father. I have lost my brother. I have lost uncles. I've lost aunts. I've lost people I love. I, I go and perform funerals for people. I realize that death happens, but that is temporary on this side of eternity. It is not eternal. It's what Jesus was telling Martha because Jesus defeated the curse of death. And watch what happens. John 11, verse 38. This is the best part of the story. Jesus was still angry as he arrived. Still angry as he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a, uh, with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested. Lord, remember, this is Martha who said, Even now I believe that if I ask anything, you'll give it to me. Now she's saying this, Lord, he's been dead for four days. 
the smell will be terrible. As the King James says, surely he stinketh. In verse 40, Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside and then Jesus looked up to the heaven and said, Father, thank you for hearing me. You always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. So that what? They will believe that you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told him, unwrap him and let him go. I love this. I love the fact that this translation is pointing out how angry Jesus was in this situation. Because we need the, the word, the literal word that's being used there is a word that means to snort with anger. You ever been snorting mad? It, it, it referenced, most of the times when it was used, it referenced a horse who was upset and angry about a situation. I don't have horses. Maybe you have horses. Maybe you deal with horses. Maybe you've seen a horse get mad and it starts snorting. This is when it talked about people in this way, it was typically talking about them responding to something in a very stern way and scolding remarks. Right? It's, it's, you've been a child, so you know when mom and dad get upset at something and you ask, why are you yelling? I'm not yelling. I'm just talking sternly because I want you to know what's going on here. Jesus is angry. And what is he angry at? He's angry at death. But I don't think he's just angry at death. I think he's also angry at what death and the sin that comes with death has led everyone to, and that is doubt and unbelief. He's angry at all of it. So Jesus, (laughs) I I don't watch it now still. Maybe you do, but back in the day, I used to watch wrestling before I got married and Jenny sent me straight. And there was a guy called Goldberg. Maybe you've heard of him. And they would always show him in the locker room. And this was before the match and before the opponent. He was in there stomping his feet and snotting and you know barking and doing all this stuff and getting ready to face his opponent. And maybe you've seen it in other sports. You see people getting ready and amping themselves and almost getting angry at the opponent they're about to face. This is the visual I've got of Jesus. He's angry at his opponent, which is death. And unbelief. And he's getting his game face home. And he's about and he's ready to step out and he's saying it's home. It's time to go. Because what Jesus is looking at is he does, I don't think he just sees Lazarus' death. I think he sees the death of every person who is affected by the curse throughout humanity. He sees the death of every person standing around him that's to come. He sees the death of every person to come, you and me included. And he's wanting to battle it head on. He sees the doubt of Martha. Martha, who had just said, Lord, I believe anything can happen, is now saying, surely we're just going to smell death when that stone is rolled away. 
But he doesn't just see Martha's doubt. He sees the doubt of all the people standing around him and whispering and saying, if he had just come earlier, he could have healed him. Why is he doing anything this way? He sees the doubt of every person that had come before and that would come after wondering, is God really who people say God is? And Jesus came to face that death and he came to face that unbelief and defeat it. To give us a reason to believe and a reason to overcome. Jesus knew that because of sin, we were separated from the Father. And that death is coming for every single one of us. But Jesus knew that if he didn't do something about it, death would be eternal. And he said, it's time to do something about it. Some first century writers say that the Jews believe that the soul would kind of linger around the body for the first couple of days. Maybe that's why Jesus waited four days. So that no superstitions could leak their way into what Jesus just did for Lazarus. So that when he called out, Lazarus, come out. They wouldn't think, oh, well, he was just mostly dead. No, he was dead. I love the way D.A. Carson says it. He says, if Jesus had not specified Lazarus, every tomb in Jerusalem would have given up their dead. But he calls Lazarus out. And his call for Lazarus to come out was a call for the beginning of the end of death. And it was a call for unbelief to become belief. And you see what he did with all those who didn't believe? He, he made them a part of the story. He told them, he said, hey guys, you go unroll. Roll away the tomb. And then when he prayed, he prayed out loud for them to hear him praying. He wasn't praying because he thought God was deaf. He wasn't praying loud because of that. He said it. He said, I am praying so they hear me have a conversation with you, Dad. And then when he calls Lazarus out and Lazarus hops out, he tells them, you go unwrap his clothes. You do it. He invites them into the journey. And has them take steps towards overcoming their doubt and their unbelief. But he came to defeat it all. And then it was after this moment that the, the plot to kill Jesus really thickened. And the people got together, the Pharisees got together with the priests and the high priest at that time. Caiaphas made this statement that he thought he was being really smart and making a statement for arguing why they needed to kill Jesus. But he was actually prophesying. He said, you don't realize it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Caiaphas, without even realizing it, you hit the nail right on the head. It is better. God knew it. That's why he wrote it that way. And Jesus came because it was better that he give his life than for we all to be destroyed by death and the sin that causes it. And just days, weeks after this, Jesus would find himself in a garden weeping alone because of what he was about to face. He would find himself alone being arrested, being taken in alone. He would be tortured. He'd be beaten He'd be crucified. And he did it all so that he could be forsaken, 
so that we wouldn't have to be. He took the penalty of every sin that was, that was then, and that was to come. So that we could be reunited and reconciled with the Father, our Creator, God. He defeated the, the, the curse of eternal death and gave and offered eternal life. Jesus came to defeat death and he came so that you could believe. But he didn't just come so you could believe. He came so you could live. The account of Lazarus is phenomenal. It's an amazing story. But Easter and every day of our life as a follower of Christ, that's not the resurrection we celebrate. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A resurrection that revealed who God was. A resurrection that changed our life. A resurrection that revealed that death is dead. Sin is defeated forever. Our past has been ironed out through the cross. And the future, our hope in the future is being pulled into the present. Because of Jesus Christ. We don't have to wait to experience that one day. We can have it now. One more statement from an author by the name of Jonathan Parnell. The Christian gospel is a story to be read, but it's not a story for mere readers. Intrinsic to the nature of this story is its demands that readers not dispassionately observe its content, but affectionately respond in the right ways. You know the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you didn't know it before today, you know it now. But I imagine you have heard the story of Easter. You've heard the story of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The question is not, have you necessarily, have you heard it? The question is, how have you responded to it? Jesus came to defeat death. He came so you could believe. Have you taken that step? Have you responded in a way that says, Jesus, I believe. And I want to give my life to you in that belief. If not, I, I encourage you, I implore you today. The only, this, Jesus is the only thing that's going to change your life forever. The only one. Make that step, take that step today. Pray, ask God, tell, confess to God, I am a sinner. I need you, Jesus. I believe in what you did. I, I believe that Jesus, he came, he died, he rose again. But I'm going to do more than believe, I want to follow. Pray that today. Make it real, make it from your heart, and then tell somebody. You don't don't journey alone, tell somebody. But the other response could be, maybe you've become a follower of Christ. My question to you is, what is your response, not just today, not just in an hour, hour and 15 minute setting in a church service, what is your response every day of your life to the resurrection? How do you respond? Stand with me this morning. As we spend a moment just closing out the service, worshiping God, reflecting on God, I want to implore you to respond in some way to the resurrection of Jesus. If it's for the first time accepting Him as your Savior and your Lord, pray that prayer that I just mentioned to Him today from your heart. If it's a response and in, 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 in looking at how am I responding every day of my life, not just today, but every day of my life, how am I responding to the to the resurrection. Seek God. Reflect on His Word. 
If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccamden.com, go to our contact page. You'll find a link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.